This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to our fifth season of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans. And for our first episode, I'm very excited and honored to be talking to one of the most remarkable chefs in the world. Jose Andres was born and raised in Spain, where he fell in love with the food of that country and eventually brought it to his successful restaurants in Washington, D.C. and New York City. He now has dozens of dining establishments in a host of different cities, including one called Mini Bar with two Michelin stars. What really sets him apart, though, is the work he's done with World Central Kitchen, which he founded in 2010 in response to the devastating earthquake that hit Haiti that year. Since then, World Central Kitchen has gone on to feed survivors of hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, and other natural disasters, as well as countless people traumatized by war. We'll talk about the important and sometimes dangerous work of that organization, the recently released World Central Kitchen cookbook, and the true meaning of hospitality on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Jose Andres, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. I mean, anytime they invite you to a podcast that is called Biscuits and Jam, I mean, you know, cannot be bad. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. Where am I reaching you right now? I'm in Washington, D.C., downtown, the Penn Quarter. I can see the National Archives. I can see the Navy Memorial. I'm in a cool part of town between the White House and the Capitol. The mall is right there. Uh, a good place. Yeah, and nice to be home, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I've been away for the last the last four months, so it feels good to be home. Well, I want to start with a very simple question. What was the last thing that you cooked for yourself or your family? Well, last night, my wife and I made lentils like the way we do in Spain. And it's this amazing pardina lentils that come from Spain. And we do these uh, carrots and leeks and onions and kind of we saute and then some Spanish pimenton, the smoked paprika, and a little bit of garlic. And then we saute everything until all the vegetables kind of are nice and sweet and kind of sweating. And then we put it in with the lentils and we let the lentils cook for close to an hour, simmering. And at the end, the lentils, some of them began breaking, the water becomes thicker. Traditionally in Spain, you may put some chorizo or some blood sausage on some bacon that then you cut in pieces and you serve as a garnish with the lentils. But my wife likes the lentils used with all the vegetables and nothing else. So I do it like the way she likes it. And that lentil in a snowy, rainy Washington, D.C. wintry day is great. Great comfort food. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so Jose, tell me a little bit about the food you had growing up. You were born in northern Spain, and then you moved to Catalonia, not far from Barcelona. But tell me about the kitchen where you grew up. Who was doing the cooking and what was on the dinner table? Well, I guess I grew up in many kitchens. The main one, the kitchen in the house I grew up and where I have real memory, that's in Barcelona. And then the other little kitchens that they were part of our life was the kitchen on my grandmother's house during Christmas, or was the kitchen 
in the restaurant of the little hotel my father will take us one week a year by the beach side, two hours outside Barcelona. My father will take me in Lent to visit a cousin in a town with uh, very few homes where my father, I guess, grew up there in his childhood. And that was a kitchen with an open fire. <laughs> so it was little kitchens all in the middle of the mountain in the countryside where my father will cook paella for friends and family. So the main kitchen, the one that really was more the kitchen of living, the kitchen of survivance, is where my father and mother live, 30 minutes outside Barcelona by a beautiful mountain, a mountain that became very important to me, San Antonio, because the school was right next to the mountain. In summer, we would go up to the top of the mountain, all the children very often. It was kind of the Goonies kind of mountain for me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Where things happen. <laughs> Uh, your first keys, the first time you fall down the mountain and you broke your head was the mountain of childhood. So uh, from the room where I live, I could see that the mountain of San Antonio, the town was Santa Coloma de Cervello. And I could see the cherry trees and the peach trees, Los Cerezos y Los Melocotones, that in the spring created this amazing blanket of white and pink flowers that was mesmerizing. Flowers that very soon after will give birth to the cherries and the peaches. And, and this was very important for me. But the kitchen, that's what you asked me. All of this was important because all of this was surrounding the kitchen. And in a way, that was important because my father liked to hunt for mushrooms. And we will pick some mushrooms in mountains like the one I had in front of me. Or we will cook with those cherries or so those peaches. But the most important is that that kitchen will be the home of all the ingredients that will be coming from the little fruteria, the fruit place. It's funny, they call it fruteria, the fruit place, but they will sell mainly vegetables and some fruits. And we will go shop for these at least two times a week. And that kitchen was home to all of that. My kitchen was very small. We had a table that will be the during the week kind of quick dinner table that will be attached to the wall, but then you could lift up the table or close the table against the wall with these two hinges to make more room. If the table was up, was very little space. If the table was down, you could have three, four people standing up, but not a lot of room to dance, just barely in place. But it's still a fascinating room where my father and mother will make magic. And my mother will cook things like croquetas at the end of the month, empty fridge. But my mother, like a magician, like a... Harry Potter will be able to come up with things that you couldn't even see. And out of that empty fridge, she will create this bechamel that will add the forgotten piece of chicken or the forgotten half egg that was boiled and chop everything and make croquetas and roll them in the breadcrumbs. That was the forgotten bread during the last month, using the coffee grinder as the way to make the crumbs and olive oil that always is plentiful in Spain, and frying those croquetas. And those croquetas, my brothers and I, we will be fighting for them, or we will exchange cores at home or things. Like, if if you give me your croqueta, I will go tomorrow to pick up the bread in the morning. <laughs> those croquetas became, I was in the Navy, and I will exchange food for things. I will be the one giving the food, and I will get other things. 
Those croquetas were amazing. My father would cook in the countryside, big paella on weekends for friends. And the kitchen was the countryside, a little fire in the middle of nowhere. And out of that fire and that paella pan and a little table on the side, my father will be able to cook for 30, 40 or 50 people. You see, this is the kitchens of my life. It was not just one kitchen, but plenty of places that even without a kitchen, I was surrounded by people that could feed anybody. That may have to be your next book, The Kitchens of My Life. <laughs> Man, uh, well, nobody asked me such an interesting question. Well, tell me how the kitchen of your childhood was. Nobody has asked me that question in the way you asked me. Sid. <laughs> so, Jose, you mentioned your father cooking for a lot of people, and you've said that cooking food for people makes you happy, and it brings you a lot of joy. And I'm sure you cooked for your family quite a bit growing up. But what was one of the first times that you cooked for a lot of people? For a crowd? Well, because early on, I will help my dad cook the paella, but I was not the one in charge. I always tell the story that my father never, never, never ever let me cook. He only let me make the fire and follow his orders on the fire. But the cooking, putting the spoon in the pan, in the pot, not allowed. So for me, making the fire was not cooking. And I tell the story when I got upset and he sent me away. And then when the paella was finished without my help, obviously, he said, my son, everybody wants to learn to do the cooking, but nobody wants to control the fire. Learn to control the fire and then you'll be able to do all the cooking you want. So for me, I went to culinary school early on because my father and my mother realized while I think I was a smart student, I was not a good student in the way schools expect you to be a good student. I guess that the traditional way of learning was not meant for me. Being in the classroom, listening to the teacher or being real, that was not the way I learned. I am more a 21st century kind of guy learning, traveling the world. And so I went to cooking school, but I was not learning anything either. And I went to restaurants. And in the restaurants, it's how really with boots on the ground, I, I began learning. And in my first year of school, we're talking 85, 86, to make some money and to learn, because for me it was not so much the money, it was learning. They will always offer you to go to the big convention center in Barcelona, which is majestic, beautiful. Uh, looks like a castle. It's, people will know it from the Olympic Games in Barcelona in 1992. And was this restaurant called El Universo, the universe. L'Universe was in Catalan. And it's the type of place they will do like 500 covers in two hours because it was the lunch break in the conferences of the morning and following. And you had to be quick, fast, and did we didn't have a lot of people in the kitchen. And that's the place I began understanding volume. And it's funny because at night I will work in a three-star Michelin, two-star Michelin restaurant. So very early on, I had the experience of big volume. Uh, even I was getting the experience on more high-end. But you ask me, when is the time I began cooking? Anytime there was a big conference, I, I will be getting a call. And I became very good in what I had to do. Few dishes, but big volume. And I became very, very good in volume. And every time my cachet went up for a 16, 17-year-old, I was getting paid, oh my God, so much money. Very well. <laughs> and I couldn't say no, but they couldn't say no, no, because the money. I couldn't say no, because I, I love it. It was like... Oh, we have to feed all these people, you know? 
and we were only few people in the kitchen to do it. And the menus were great, cooked from scratch. Uh, began their days early. So this was kind of my first experience cooking for the masses. One day the chef didn't come because was sick or something happened on the subway, on the train. And there I am with boom, and I'm kind of in charge. My life has been a little bit like this all the time. Like uh, I've been not put in charge because I was given a job, but I had to cover the gap because somebody didn't show up. So Jose, you're a teacher. You've taught at Harvard and you've taught at George Washington University and you've taught a lot of young chefs coming up. Who was the best teacher that you had? Who was a teacher that really made an impact on you and kind of changed your trajectory? I had one teacher that I only had few classes from him and he was the professor de gastronomia and the teacher of gastronomy. And he was more like a thinker, a thinker of food. And his name was Llorenz Torrado, Llorenz Torrado. He passed away already a long time ago. And I wish I was able to see him a few weeks, even a few months before he passed away. I never spent a lot of time with him, but the time I spent with him in the classroom was very meaningful. And then life gave me the opportunity to few times outside the classroom to also spend time with him. And for me, it was very important because this was a guy that will be able to have an egg in his hand and Establish a fascinating conversation about the egg. And I know it looks like, what was first, the chicken or the egg? Well, kind of that, but food, the history. When we think humans uh, ate an egg for the first time, when was recorded, when was written. But when we think really happened, before it was written, what things humanity has done with eggs. When was the first time mayonnaise ever happened or the first time eggs were used in cooking? I'm using egg as an example. He will do the same with any other ingredient or a glass of water. And I think he was more like a philosopher more than a teacher. I will argue that philosophers are teachers. But for me, he was very special in that sense. It was not how long I knew him, but the intensity of the time you spent with him. I know my friends who took his class. And I know when he passed away, it was many of us kind of, oh, man. Because he really was to me like a true food whisperer. But now that you are asking me the question, without a doubt, he was one of those guys that when he was teaching, you were mesmerized. When he was teaching, you were listening. When he was teaching, he was the center of attention because the way he delivered, but the way he was thinking about what he was delivering, almost you got the feeling like he was not teaching, but he was learning in the process of sharing what he knew. And this, to me, is the best way of teaching, that you realize that in the way you are teaching, you are also learning, mm. and that almost you are connecting the dots. The same way you're asking me this question, and right now my brain is going through the memory lane. In a way, he was connecting the dots as he was talking to us about things. And I think this is a fascinating way to teach because you don't go with the pretension that you know everything, but you go also with the mind of the young people that they are also in the process of learning. And when both are together, you know a lot, but you realize the more you know, you know nothing. It's a very fascinating, you know everything and you know nothing all at the same time. This is a fascinating way to see the world. Well, it sounds to me like you took a lot away from him. And particularly when I think about World Central Kitchen and everything that you've done, and you talk about this in the new book, that you started it and you went to these places and you listened first. 
And there may have been some times when you thought you knew more and that you were going to be the teacher, but really you went into these communities and you learned what they needed. Is that fair? Yeah. Obviously, he was important in me on this. And then, obviously, Ferran Adria, who was really my culinary icon and my friend, my brother, my teacher, in a way, I think he's a guy that inside him, he's like a little child learning when he's the supermaster, and that's who he is. And and for me, culinarily was also the guy that allow us just purely cooking to look food through a different lens and don't take things for granted and always sharing, right? So I think obviously the guy I mentioned you, Lorenz Torrado, Ferran Adria, but now you're mentioning Ball Central Kitchen, but obviously it's my business and it's my life, you know, what I do in my restaurants. It's funny because a lot of people associate me with Ball Central Kitchen. But for me, this is like a side gig. You know, everybody volunteers. A lot of people try to do something. There's many ways to collaborate. For me, World Central Kitchen was, before was DC Central Kitchen, where still I participate, fighting hunger, creating opportunity right in Washington, DC. For me, the best NGO in America, an NGO that is almost for profit, generates wealth, trains people, fights food waste, uh, feeds the homeless, generates economic growth. It's a fascinating NGO, and I learned there. But for me, obviously, what you ask is for Wall Central Kitchen and the lessons learned about going to communities and seeing out of the box totally. It's not any different. I'm speaking from where I opened my first restaurant, Haleo, in 1993. And the place was empty. And that town was empty after 4 o'clock. And here we are 30 years later, and the restaurant cannot be doing better and obviously became a very important icon for everything that had to do with downtown DC. But we were not the only ones. We were part of a ecosystem of other people and other businesses, theaters, and others that believed that downtown was a place we all had to invest. That's how we make communities better. When many people believe in a place, when you put faith and belief in a place, the communities do well. At the end, it's just people giving their best to make their communities better. This is for profit. This is how you create communities, how you create cities, how you make things better. Not by finger pointing at what's wrong, but when you take the responsibility to fix what may be wrong, the communities are what you are fighting for the communities to be and not giving up on those communities. This is the heart of what America is. That's the heart of what the world is. Not about politics, because you are not of my party. You are a bad person. But if they are Jewish, Great. Uh, can I learn from your traditions? They are Muslim. Can I learn from your traditions? I'm a Catholic boy. Let me share mine with you. And together, we become better. Why? Because it's the way the world works. More is more. Now you bring this to the nonprofit. It's exactly the same. How do we make the place a better world when we solve problems? When charity is not about the redemption of the giver, but about the liberation of the receiver. That's what my friend Robert Egger, the founder of DC Central Kitchen, told me. And the lessons I learned is that you go somewhere, like I went to Haiti in 2010, and a group of women comes to me that even if I was trying to do good, they tell me, hey, boy, thank you for making these black beans, but we don't need them like this around here, okay? Can we tell you how we eat them? I could go and say, hey, who do you think who you are? You're going to eat them this way or no way? Or, oh man, thank you for letting me know 
Thank you for establishing a relationship. Thank you for letting me be part of who you are because I want to learn. And at the end, applies the same for your communities, for the nonprofit, for government, for the world. If we all listen more to each other, the world will be a much better place. And when you feel like when somebody tells you, I don't like something, doesn't mean that that doesn't like you. They're only telling you, this is the way I like it, which if you are an open mind, is just a fascinating way to be part of this world. After the break, I'll talk more with Jose Andres about the new World Central Kitchen cookbook, a few of his favorite recipes, and the meaning of hospitality. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the chef, cookbook author, and humanitarian, Jose Andres. Jose, let me ask you about the World Central Kitchen cookbook, which just came out. And it's not like any cookbook that I've ever read. And one of the things that I loved about it is that it brings together so many different cultures. And even though the dishes in the book come from all over the world— and all sorts of different cuisines, they seem to come from a similar place. Why is that? Well, because they come from a place of empathy. They come from a place of love. Also, they come from a place of, <laughs> we'll do whatever we have to do today because we don't have much around. Sometimes people, oh, it's great. You are making tamales and you're serving them in this corn husk or in this banana leaf. So good, so clever, so nice. You know what we did it that way? Because it's the first day. Everything is chaos. It's nothing around. It's no electricity. We barely have any ingredients yet. It's no forks. It's no plates. It's no knives. It's no spoons. It's no fancy equipment. But what we have is some woman that they've been making tamales for generations. And we're with a little open wood fire and a little big pot with holes. They're able to steam the tamales and they have corn because they know where to find it. Uh, and they have maybe some chicken. Or, and they make the tamales. And they make the tamales because that's what they do all their life without electricity and under the most difficult situations. And all of a sudden, the tamale is the place where 
the banana, the corn husk is where they are putting the tamal mix with the corn, sometimes with banana, green banana, that also is a steam, it's not always corn. And then that same banana becomes the perfect medium for you to transport and for you to deliver in the early hours of a hurricane. And while it may look fancy, it's actually the most creative way to do it in a moment that you have literally nothing at your disposal. That is clever, is the best solution for the moment. So in the book, you see a lot of stories, like the one I explained about the black beans. But the stories is not about the food, but the people behind the food that made it happen. And it's many more people. This book could be a 100,000 recipe book. That's how many recipes, I believe, World Central Kitchen has done, where people did what they could with what they had. Sometimes in the early days, under very challenging situations, and as the days and the weeks move forward, the quality, the diversity, and the complication of the dishes increase accordingly, and not necessarily become better dishes than the one we served first day. But there in this book is the stories of how the dishes happen in the middle of mayhem, in the middle of chaos, in the worst moment of humanity, the best of humanity show up. There's a recipe in the book for chicken chili verde. And you've said that this has become a World Central Kitchen classic. Tell me just a little bit about that dish and why you describe it as a classic. Well... I think it's a classic because uh, some dishes are naturally beloved by all. I don't even remember in the book where it says it came. I don't know. It was one of the missions we did in New Mexico or in Florida. Because sometimes if so many dishes happening at once, I don't go to every mission. But I go to the big ones. And I'm not in every kitchen. Remember, in Ukraine alone, we had over 500 restaurants. Uh, <laughs> during the pandemic, we had... Also, hundreds and hundreds of restaurants in America alone. But I can tell you about dishes that they are not even in the menu, uh, like Rondon. And Rondon was a dish that was served to me in Colombia, in an island called San Andres. This is an archipelago. And in San Andres was an island called Providencia. Providencia was totally destroyed. 6,000 people with no light and no home. And no homes. Every home was blown away. 2,000 more people that came from the military of Colombia. And all of a sudden, we show up there and we have to feed 8,000 people a day. At the beginning, we were kind of, ah, oh, we don't need you. But I knew they needed us. And I was very glad we were there knocking on the door at the aviation uh, of the Colombian Air Force. That at the beginning, it's not like they tell you we don't need you because they don't care. It's because sometimes the chaos of the moment <laughs> doesn't allow people to say, we need you, especially when they don't know who you are. For some reason happened, I knew the president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, but I didn't even realize I knew the president of Colombia, <laughs> which is what makes everything even more fascinating. We only show up because we knew they needed help. We were coming from Honduras and Guatemala, uh, was back-to-back -back hurricanes. But you, long story short, the dish happened many weeks later when the people of San Andres, we had a lot of restaurants helping us. And thanks to the Colombian military, we will be able to ship every day by plane to the island of Providencia. 
And the main dish there was called Rondon. And this was a fascinating dish I never even read about. A mix of the best of Africa with the best of the Caribbean, Latin America. And this was like a very big stew with coconut milk as the base, red snapper, conch, pig's tail, pig's ear, some dumplings, a little bit of bay leaf, boil, yuca, mandioca, malanga, all these roots, all these fish, all these vegetables. Oh my God, I couldn't believe that dish. So that dish is not even in the book because we didn't really use it to serve the people, but it's a dish that was an homage to the men and women of World Central Kitchen. And to this day, I remember this dish. I'm like, oh my God, we need to do use a show about that dish because it's the show that tells the story of the forgotten islands of the Caribbean where Afro-Americans came and then the Spanish came and other. And out of that, all those dishes came out. So again, this is a book that everybody's going to have a favorite from the green chili to the black beans to so many other recipes that already people are tweeting about it saying, this is my best new favorite. This is my best new favorite. And I have a feeling is because they realize, and I think this book is able to send this message that those recipes really gave hope and comfort in a very difficult moment to a lot of people somewhere around the globe, from Indonesia to Colombia, from Mozambique to North Carolina. And that's the beauty of this book. Mm. Jose, the work that you do can be very dangerous. And you have another new book out. It's a graphic novel called Feeding Dangerously. What do you tell volunteers who are heading into war zones and disaster zones with so many unknowns? Well, this is a good question. And it's one that sometimes doesn't let me sleep easier, understanding that I don't work for World Central Kitchen, I'm one more volunteer, but I have the pressure on my shoulders by being the founder that people may be putting themselves, obviously, in those difficult situations. I want people to know that World Central Kitchen, we lost six people in Ukraine. If anybody listening to us has any doubt, if America should be supporting Ukraine, I will say, of sure we should. Ukrainians are great people. They are fighting for their freedom, their democracy. They've been attacked and they are defending themselves. And it's not the same to attack others than to defend yourself. We lost six people in Ukraine and I wish we didn't. But obviously we don't put anybody in harm's way. The people that we had in Ukraine, more than 6,000 Ukrainians at one moment, were Ukrainians that were going nowhere. I remember very often telling people, we are getting too close to the front lines to feed people. And they will always tell me, Jose, we have to. They are elderly. They are impaired. They are in wheelchairs. They are sick people. They are too poor or too old, or they have to take care of their animals. That's what we have to feed them, even if we're putting ourselves in danger. I think one of the biggest moments was I took my daughter Ines with me to Ukraine. Actually, I didn't take her with me. We were in the middle of shooting a TV show in Spain, which has been on CNN and other channels, Discovery and HBO, called Jose Andres and Family in Spain. And it's when the war began. And in between shootings, I will go back and forth to Ukraine. I spent more than 130, 140 days in Ukraine. And one of the times, my daughter Ines wanted to come with me to Poland, which is the place you will come first. And I thought I was leaving my daughter in Poland. We already had a very big kitchen doing 
tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of meals a day, feeding every single place in the border in Poland, plus other countries surrounding Ukraine with cafe, coffee places 24-7, hot soups and others. But my daughter told me, Daddy, I'm going with you to Ukraine. I said, I cannot. I mean, I'm not going to get in trouble with your mom. I said, Daddy, how do you want us to change the world without taking some risk? And my daughter came with me into Ukraine. They're not going to protect them better behind a wall. But when I tried to make the world around that wall safer for everybody else. And that was a big lesson from my daughter to me. We lost six people in Ukraine. I was in earthquakes in Turkey. I went into Syria with my buddy Sam Block, who right now is in Gaza. Every time you go, it's dangerous. You have cables. You have mountains that fall down. You have situations that you don't know. You have floods. But as my daughters say, how are we going to take care of the wall if we don't take some risks? So obviously, nobody goes anywhere that they don't feel comfortable. We don't push anybody to go anywhere they don't feel comfortable. But we need all to remember that those places we are trying to help is people that they are in danger themselves. So the big question is how are we going to be changing the world and be making the world a little bit better? Well, we need to all take some risks. We can all stay in the comfort of our homes and it's okay. And nobody should feel guilty by doing so. At times I wonder what the heck I keep going places. But I want to believe in that very simple message of my daughter when she asked me in a very naive but powerful way, Daddy, how are we going to be changing the world if we don't take some risks? Made me proud of that. But at the same time, obviously, we need to make sure that we take care of the people that take care of the people. I've been in some difficult situations. We've been under shelling. We've been in mines. We've been under bombs and gunshots and who knows what else. I think it's worth the risk because it's always people in more danger than we are. And the least we can do is to be there to understand. Because if we are blind to what happens in the world, there's no way we can come up with the right solutions to solve the problems that people are facing. Well, I hope all of your staff and your volunteers and you stay safe. Jose, you're a busy man. I just have one more question for you. You know, we talk a lot about hospitality at Southern Living. And, you know, it's the idea of welcoming people into your home and feeding them and making them comfortable and you turn away no one. And as someone who has built his restaurant business and a whole organization around this idea, what does hospitality mean to you? Hmm. For me, I was always trying to search why we are all so attached to food. Why we all seem to have these connection to food in ways that they are so powerful, that we all have a story, even if we don't know how to cook, that we are able to lie. And that lie is a good one. Because when you say, this Thanksgiving, I ate the best roasted turkey in the history because my grandma made it, you know you're lying because probably was dry. <laughs> but even that lie is allowed because those are the good ones. Those are the good lies. But maybe it was a great one. And usually it's friends and it's family and you're cooking or you're going to a restaurant and you know the chef or the cook or you know the waiter or the manager. Or, and usually what happens is that around the table, we are always inviting somebody that we don't know. And lunch or dinner is a way to bring somebody we don't know into our lives. Even if you're having a coffee with a little croissant or some churros, 
It's the moment of bringing somebody into your life and eating with them. It's almost like it's like you're sealing a relationship. Always the beginning of a relationship may go places. Obviously, if you bring somebody home, wow. But I always say that this moment is because the first moment in life that we receive a tangible in the form that sends the message of love, of I care, is when our moms, when we come to the world, bring us to their bodies, their warm bodies, and feeds us. Even if they are not able, it's our dad or our grandma giving us a baby bottle. But the first moment we receive love is in the form of food. And I think this gets sealed inside the deepest part of our self, of our DNA, and forever stays with us. And, and what I want to remind everybody is that, obviously, food is this ultimate gesture of love because going shopping, <laughs> getting everything ready, cooking, putting the table, that's a lot of work, my friends. I remember... Me, I had a good example in my dad. My dad was hands-on in the kitchen. Here, there was no separation of powers. But my mom was always the one that, okay, what are the children eating tonight? So I think people need to remember that longer tables wins the day. A table usually is one of the happiest places, that even when we are with people that we disagree with, the plate of food, the glass of wine, the ultimate respect that the table sends to everybody makes people to have conversations even in a more magnanimous way. Even that you are listening to the person is sharing their ideas, even if we disagree with them, and then that person is gonna listen to ours. And that's why I say longer tables is the very simple place where what is good for me must be good for you. Don't be fooled by anybody that tells you it's them versus us, because it's never been the case. America was founded in three very simple words. We, the people, and we need to believe that we, the people, is not our people. It's we, the people, all the people. Not we, the people, the ones are like me and think like me, and that the ones don't, they are my enemies. No, we, the people, means we all. Where even if you think different than me, I'm going to see it as a way for me to learn, not as a way to feel attacked. And I'm expecting the same back from you when I share with you what I think. And actually, I'm going to try to find a middle ground because if somebody was holding all the truth and nothing but the truth and had all the answers to make a perfect world, please tell me where that place is because I want to go. And that's what the table is. It's the closest thing we have to the perfect place. The closest thing we have to heaven on earth. Is the place that we can be who we are, where we can express love and affection and empathy, where we can be welcoming those that we want to bring back into our lives, and where we are all sharing the goodness of the earth. That's what hospitality means to be. It's the almost perfect place on earth. Wow. Well, I hope you'll keep doing what you're doing. And congrats on the book and congrats on all the work that you've done at World Central Kitchen. And thank you for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I can add one more thing. You mentioned Feeding Dangerously, and it's a comic book. If you want to learn through a comic what was the beginning and the idea behind World Central Kitchen, trying to find it, Feeding Dangerously, the money raised on that book, 100% goes to Wall Central Kitchen. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jose Andres. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And as always, we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, preferably a good one, we'd appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join me next week for an interview with the rising country star, Brittany Spencer, who just released her debut album and it's fantastic. I'll see you then. Mm -hmm.